0: Welcome to the Her Inspired Journey podcast. I'm your host, Courtney Levesque. I'm here to bridge the gap for women in the outdoors, support families, and roll out your weekly dose of positive vibes. With almost two decades in the health and fitness world and an untamable passion for hunting in the outdoors, my mission is to help you move boldly in the direction of your dreams. Join us here weekly as we talk about fitness and mindset, accountability, as well as all things hunting and epic untold stories. Wait a minute. Before we jump into this episode today, I want to talk to you about her inspired fitness. If you're looking to get back in shape, regain what you once had, lose some weight, or really just work on regaining your focus and motivation, head over to herinspiredfitness.com. We have some great community blog pages. We have good resources, training tools, recipes, and of course, some of our staple programs to help you get back what you once had or regain your level of fitness. Now, we've got core programs. We have lower body and glute programs. We have transformation programs. And we, of course, always talk about how to maintain and sustain a healthy lifestyle for the long haul. No quick Give me no magic wands and no fancy pills to take, just the good stuff that will help you truly implement and take charge of your health and your life. If you want to start living your best life right now, head to herinspiredfitness.com. Without further ado, let's jump in. We are long overdue for having this conversation, <laughs> but you have, uh, you have been going through quite a lot, Laura. So before we get into all of that, just kind of give us a little background into you, your life, who you are, and just a, a little bit of history. Uh,
1: yeah. So
0: I'm Laura Young, um,
1: and I live in North Carolina, born and raised here, um, when, we, when I was 10, we moved up to the mountains, so I'm um, in the very northwest corner of North Carolina, right on the Virginia-Tennessee line, and I um, wasn't raised hunting like a lot of people are. Um, I was raised shooting. My dad's always been big into like target shooting, but never really into hunting, um, and he was an extension agent. So I was raised in 4-H and FFA, showing livestock my whole life, Um, and just it all was a love for the outdoors, and I always wanted to hunt, but never really had the opportunity until I I moved to New Zealand, and then then that's where I really started hunting and really getting involved in the hunting industry, Um, and I guess you can say Probably everybody else knows the rest of the story. <laughs> Let's assume uh, they don't. Let's assume that they I, don't. <laughs> yeah. So uh, just developed from there, started hunting there, met some hunting guides, um, and that's when I got involved with with guiding and working in hunting camps, and that's taken me New Zealand, Australia, um, Alaska, Montana, Texas, Utah. Idaho. I think that covered all the states. Um, And right now I am stuck in North Carolina since, since COVID started. Um, And then currently, you know, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. So now I'm at home trying to get that taken
0: care of. Yeah. Yeah. So talking a little bit more about the hunting side of things, and you mentioned doing some camps, like what do those look like and how did that evolution come to be?
1: Um, Well, the first camp I ever uh, helped out in was a friend of mine in New Zealand found out I was into hunting um, and said, hey, I am a hunting outfitter and these people from the U.S. come and hunt with me. And I had never even fathomed a hunting industry before. I just figured, you know, in North Carolina where I grew up, people went out in their backyard and they shot deer and they shot turkeys and that was that my uncle every now and then would go shoot birds in some other state. But I just figured, you know, he's going to a friend's house. I had never encountered the whole people paying to go on a hunt and traveling and never even considered the fact that people would travel to another country to go hunting. And so here's this guy saying, Hey, we do these red stags and they're like elk. And we do these goats that are called tar and they live in the mountains. And I have American clients and you are into all this stuff. So why don't you come and help me out for a bit and, um, you get to go out and go on the hunts with them and get to meet Americans. And I think they'll feel more comfortable with me having somebody in camp that speaks their language. <laughs> um, and so I did it and I was hooked. Um, and so then I started, um, met other people that were in, the industry and started getting to go to other, other camps, and so I just started out as a cook, just a cook and a packer, just hauling people's equipment, a tour guide. A lot of times, um, like in New Zealand and Australia, the the hunters would want something else to do, so I'd 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 give them advice on where to go and what to see, or I'd take them myself and just drive them around and show them all the tourist sites. Um, and from there, I got to start doing the shows. And that's when I met American Outfitters and started working um, in the fall in the U.S., working in different hunting camps
0: there. It sounds like a pretty win-win job. you <laughs> You're adventuring, you're hunting, you're in the mountains, you're getting to have those great experiences. And I'm sure there were a lot of wonderful things about it. Let's talk about the not so wonderful things. Like if looking back, what were your least favorite parts about that? Like what's the real in that whole scenario?
1: Oh, the real. <laughs> well, the fact that it is a 24 seven job. I mean, you're on the clock all the time. If a client needs something, you have to be there for it. You don't ha- and doing it remotely like you do, whether you're in a foreign country or whether even you're a guide in Alaska or Montana, we are so far out. You don't have a day off. You just keep going and- I know I went for about two years without actually having like a real day off my days off are my days in the plane in transit between (laughs) from one job to the next. And it wears you down after a while, just being constantly having to be constantly turned on, you know, constantly aware of, of your client's needs and the situation that you're in just constantly being on point, um, wears on you for a while. So
0: uh, well yeah, and that's a, it's an, it's a, <laughs> a it's a constant outpour of your energy, you know, which And, you know, I can only relate in a small, small way, like coming off of shows, like a four or five day show or something. By the end of it, you're like, I just need a quiet space. So I can't Mm -hmm. imagine going through two years of not really having that time off and having to be on all the time to be able to accommodate, you know, to be friendly, to make sure that experience for the hunter or, you know, whoever was adventuring was a good one. So I can only imagine that was fairly taxing for you. yes did it change your (laughs) did it change your view or experience as a hunter at all um I got involved in
1: the hunting industry so soon after I'd started hunting that the two kind of go hand in hand for me okay um it's really hard to separate them and I've, I've done more of my own hunting you know recently um So when I first started, I did meet some hunting guides that said, I don't even want to hunt for myself anymore because I just, any day that I have off, I want to just spend alone. And I don't, I'm so burnt out on hunting from guiding that I don't actually even want to hunt for myself. And when I heard people say that, I was like, okay, if I get to that point, then I obviously need to stop doing this because it's become where it's it's, it's even worse than a job. It's just, it's not even fun. And it's more of a, a, um, gosh, I can't think of the word, but you know, it's, it's, it's hurting me more than being a good thing. Is it worth the money to be a guide and to give up something you love so much, um, that you don't even want to do it yourself anymore. So, I haven't gotten to that stage yet. So
0: <laughs> can you hand pick like one experience that stands apart from the rest as being like the highlight of your time as a guide? Mm.
1: There's actually so many, I mean, I just, you get so many different personalities and it's like, it's like traveling each place is so different that there's things that are great in each little place. Um, And it's the same with clients. I mean, sure you've got some that you just don't like at all, but the ones you do like, you like for so many different reasons. Um, It's hard to pick an exact perfect one that I thought was the best highlight because I've had so many good ones. Um, I'm gonna say, (laughs) I don't want to offend any of my clients, Um, or any of my friends because they they become more than clients. They become friends. Um, We had a family that came and hunted with us quite a few years ago. It was for the son's, um, his graduation present from high school. All he wanted to shoot was a Red Stag. So his grandpa was actually paying for him to shoot a Red Stag. So his grandpa was on the hunt and his mom and his dad were also on the hunt. So it was three generations of family Mm -hmm. all at the same time. And they were all three hunting And they were just really great people and just so much fun to be around. And um, so we got everyone. And and Caleb, the son, was... 16 at the time so it was a little bit of an early um graduation present but he was just it was so cool to be with him because everything was so exciting um when he shot his stag and got up he was shaking so
0: hard <laughs> that,
1: <laughs> that i mean i i think we have video of him and you can see him just shaking and i'm like caleb you're shaking he's like i'm so excited this is just so amazing and he's an avid elk hunter and has shot so many elk in his lifetime, but this was just something completely different. And um, he was the same when he shot his tar. He just loved it. And every, every moment of it. And I've actually been to Wyoming um, year before last and went out and helped them with their hunts in Wyoming two years ago and got to go out elk hunting with them and antelope hunting with them and got to bring home a whole cooler full of meat after it. So, (laughs) it they're just a really great family kept in touch with them but um like I said there's so many that I could list (laughs) that 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 were great hunts when we were with them and we've kept in contact with the whole time and I've been to their houses in the U.S. and hunted with them in the U.S. and um just maintained that friendship throughout the years
0: there's such a powerful force in the mountains in the wilderness and the woods, wherever you're at, you know, experiencing that joy of hunting. It's such and like an intimate experience, both for yourself in that environment, but also I think with the men and women who share that passion, it's like, it's almost like they get it, you know, to some degree that it's personal for them, but they get that bond and that desire that, um, like untamable passion to be in the mountains, having that experience. So that's one thing that I think is really great. In fact, I met you at, I think it was um, the Hunt Expo in Salt Lake City a couple years ago. And that was great because, you know, those, those shows, you know, as a consumer, they're great because you can get your hand on product. But um, I love them because you can just connect with people who you really know, understand, when you're telling a story, they feel it in the way that you may have felt it, you know? So having clients that you get to have those experiences and opportunities with that then turn and become friends and somebody that you can keep that bond with is pretty awesome.
1: Yeah, yeah I'd say that's probably the highlight of being in doing what I'm doing because you do see them in that environment where they're out doing what their real passion is and you really get to know them in your, your day to days. I mean, You're going a week or two weeks without a shower, so you're the you're you're at the bare bones basic with this person. There's no put-ons because you see them all night. You're in the same cabin or in the tent. You know if they snore. You know when they (laughs) fart. (laughs) I mean, you you know what their eating habits are. You know everything by the end of a week with the person. That's so (laughs) true. There's no hiding.
0: (laughs) That's so true. Exactly. Yeah. You know exactly their smells, their mannerisms, how they walk, how they stumble. And it's, it, yeah, that makes me laugh when you say that because hunting can bring the very, the very best and sometimes even the potential for the very worst out of somebody, Mm -hmm. you know, you're tired, you can get cold, the elements can add up, um, But yeah, it's, it's funny sometimes when I see couples that hunt together, you know, either a couple will hunt really, really, really well together, or at the end of it, they want to just like wring each other's neck, you know, but (laughs) they you just have to hunt solo. (laughs) Exactly. Can be true for hunting partners too, but you really do get to know somebody on a much deeper level. And, uh, it's funny one of my biggest pet peeves and I share this with like a lot of people I found out by asking this specific question is listening to people chew or eat food <laughs> and I have been hunting with several people who oh Laura, I just could. And it's, and it's funny because at the end of the day, typically everybody's pretty hungry, tired, just ready to eat and, Mm and, you know, cash out. But, um, oh my gosh, there's been so many times that I'm like rethinking my choices in life based on how loud somebody's eating their food. What would you say? Do you have like one of those kind of like pet peeves on a hunt like that? Um, the food chewing, thank God, I've never been with somebody that was <laughs> terrible about it. Now, I do know one
1: one of the people I worked with could pick that out. And it wasn't necessarily the sound as much as how they ate. And he would like, you know, afterwards would be like, oh, my God, did you see how that person was eating? I cannot believe it. And, I'm, and I didn't really notice, but that's something that he would, I guess that was his pet peeve. um. um I don't know about, about mine in, in reference to like hunting mm, things that people do <laughs> or mannerisms, I should say. Um, we had this one couple that came one year that they had the weirdest laughs. laughs. And it was just so weird. It was like, Oh my God, that's really how they laugh. And, it, it was more like a tee-hee-hee-hee-hee, t- 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 like you didn't see it in a commercial, like in a cartoon. And, and the funniest thing was at one point in time we, we were, there was there was like four hunters in camp and one of the guys actually said, the one with the funny laugh said about another hunter, oh my God, he's got the weirdest laugh. And, and we're just sitting there going, what? <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> no, you're the one with the weird laugh. <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, I I guess I really really can't think of an actual pet peeve I have as far as little mannerisms like that are <laughs> concerned. Um, out in the field, you know, I can't stand people that don't pay attention to where they're pointing their
0: rifle because I've been almost shot oh, so yeah. many times. It's not even funny, but.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. but yeah.
0: I remember, so I've, I've taken a handful of people out on like their first hunts or really just kind of getting their feet wet with it. Um, one year, it's probably been seven or eight years ago. Um, I had a buddy of mine and he's like, I've never been elk hunting before. He just got a general season tag here in Oregon and wanted me to take him out. And I grew up hunting in very select camps, right? So it's just me and not just a general, like everybody's going to show up or whatever. Like we were very specific about who we hunted with. And I finally looked at him one day and I said his name and I said, I swear to God, you point that rifle at me one more time. Cause we had already talked about <laughs> gun safety, where to point it, you know, trigger, keep it unloaded, all this stuff. And I said, I swear to God, I will leave you out here and you will have to find your way back. And, but I totally can relate to you. And it's funny. And actually I, the boys and I have been watching a show. Um, it's not a hunting show per se, but it's, and I don't want to name it, but um, we love the show, but the guy always points his rifle like in the direction of the camera and all this kind of stuff so to my kids I'm always saying like oh did you see that and they're like oh yeah you know he, he needs to have muzzle control and really pay attention to that but and it's kind of crazy because on that level I think about people who watch it that don't have gun safety or know how to control a weapon the right way that like they'll never even pick up on that you know what I mean so mm-hmm. I do think that there's a lot of responsibility as a uh, proficient to some degree um shooter, hunter, whatever, that you can kind of teach those things as you go too, cause that's huge. You know, accidents definitely happen every year by somebody not controlling, <laughs> yeah. okay. you know, their firearm. So, <laughs> but that's a big one. Did you know ticks can cause life-threatening illness and disease? The great thing here is it can be prevented. No matter if you're hunting or just out on an epic adventure, you're likely to come into contact with ticks or be in tick-infested areas. They can be transmitted off of your body, your gear, or even your pets. I choose to use Sawyer insect repellent to keep my family and myself safe. Whether you're using permethrin spray, which can be put directly onto gear and will last up to six washes, or you're using the Picaridin lotion, which is kid and pet safe, by the way, you're giving yourself a huge advantage in tick prevention. Head over to Sawyer.com to see what they've got going on and get your family protected from all things ticks. So last summer, you decided that you were going to go off and do some adventuring some hiking right (laughs) yes so and this was this not kind of a cause and effect by COVID getting shut down so you weren't able to go and guide right right
1: right, exactly because usually that time of year I would have been in um, Australia but with everything being shut down um, and you know June July August is not a huge hunting season in the U.S. plus they were saying don't go anywhere and don't do anything. Um, so I just went hiking um, two years ago. So in 2018, yeah, in 2018, I actually made myself take a vacation. That was after going like almost two years without having a real, real days off. Um, I took five weeks off in between, in between hunting seasons and spent three of those hiking the Appalachian trail. Um, cause it's something I wanted to do. Once I started backpack hunting, I live right here by the Appalachian trail and I thought, okay, well I've done the backpack hunting thing. Let's, I want to do one of these long distance ones and I'm, you know, doing the whole entirety of the Appalachian trail takes. Five or six months, and I didn't have that kind of time. But I could do just a section of it. So I did um, did about three weeks in 2018, um, and when everything shut down for COVID, I was actually in Chile and Argentina hiking down there, and had to leave both countries and literally next to the last flight out of Chile back to the US to get back into the US and not get stuck down there. And they were closing the national parks so you couldn't go out hiking. And I came back to the US and about the time I got back to the US, I thought, yay, I can really, out. this is March. I've got plenty of time to go hiking. And then they started shutting down trails and campgrounds in the US too. Um, so when things started opening back up again, um, I said, I'm, I'm getting back out there. I'm gonna use this downtime to think.
0: <laughs> so I did um I packed up my pack and went out and started hiking. So give us the rundown of that. Like how far did you make it? What were those experiences like? What'd you learn in that time? Um yeah, so I started on the Appalachian Trail again. Um and started
1: at the southern end of Shenandoah because at that point in time the Shenandoah park was still closed and started hiking south on the Appalachian Trail. And I hiked for about two weeks, I think, and then came home for 4th of July because my grandmother was coming up and uh, resupplied while I was home for that. And then I had discovered this trail called the Benton McKay Trail, which is goes through Georgia and Tennessee and North Carolina and is kind of an alternate to the Appalachian Trail. And thought, well, it's even less traveled than the Appalachian trail. So I want to do that one because I was hitting a whole bunch of people on the Appalachian trail that had gotten back on the trail after getting off to complete their through hikes. Um, so I got on the, so I decided to do that and it loops back in with the Appalachian trail. So I got back on at the Northern end of the Smokies and took the Appalachian trail down through the Smokies and down all the way to where it starts at Springer mountain, Georgia, and then came back up on the Bitten Mackay trail Um, until it joins back with the AT at the other end, at the Northern end of the Smokies. And then I just kept going North for a while. Um, and then stopped then because my parents were there. And so they brought me home for a resupply. And by that point in time, I had noticed the lump in my breast and, um, I knew it was there before, but I just had this thought in my brain that, okay, it's just a cyst. It's going to go away. And it wasn't going away. And with all that hiking, I was losing weight. So I don't know if the lump was getting bigger or it just just felt like it was getting bigger. So I was like, I've got to go to the doctor. So I called the doctor's office and thought, you know, it usually takes you a long time to get a doctor's appointment. I thought I'm going to call and it's going to be like, a month before I can get in. So I just go back on the trail, not a big deal, maybe even two months. And I called and the doctor said, and the receptionist was like, well, we don't actually have an appointment until like a month, a month and a half from now. I was like, well, that's fine. And she was actually, wait, we just had someone cancel this morning. Can you be here at eight o'clock tomorrow morning? And not at all what I was expecting to hear. I was like, okay. Um, you know, you don't look serendipity like that or yeah. So I was like, all right, I'll be there tomorrow. And so I went in the next day to get um, a mammogram. Well, I had a lump and the doctor, as soon as she felt it and saw it said, okay, yeah. And she scheduled me for a mammogram that afternoon. And so that afternoon I went in for a mammogram and an ultrasound. And then they said, yeah, we need to check this out. And so a week later I was scheduled for a biopsy. So in between the mammogram and the ultrasound, I actually did go back on the trail for five days hiking um, and
0: then went in for the biopsy. What was going and, through your head at that time, Laura? Like knowing that you just came from doing that, <laughs> like, were you worried about it? Or like, what was going through your head? Everything. Um, yeah, when the doctor says,
1: okay, we need to biopsy this. This, isn't, this is something we need to worry about. And actually, I think the doctor that did my mammogram and ultrasound actually tell, you know, well, I wasn't totally processing it. Cause he actually said right before I left, you know, there's a good chance. This isn't nothing, mm. I guess, kind of trying to prepare me for it. Um, so that was kind of like, but when you, when you, even when you hear that, you're thinking you want to believe the best you want to believe it is just nothing. And, I think that's what makes you keep going is that you just have to think, okay, this test is going to come back as it be nothing. I'm not going to worry about it. Sure. Even though the entire five days I was hiking, that's all I was thinking about. Of course, that was everything that was going through my brain. I was really always thinking was if it's not nothing, what am I going to do? <laughs> what is, is going to happen? So yeah. Yeah it's a lot to process and the hiking helped me price process it or at least try to attempt to process it. And then the biopsy happened and it takes a week after your biopsy to get results. So that's a week of just like, Oh my God. But in that week, my grandmother had had an accident. She'd had an issue of vertigo and had ended up in the hospital. And so I went to take care of her. And (laughs) my cousin's wedding was coming up in like two weeks. And she was having it in my grandma's backyard because she had to change all of her plans because of COVID. So she'd gone to just a small ceremony. So I was helping with that. So it kept me very preoccupied. So I wasn't thinking about
0: exactly what was going on in my life. I had other things to think about (laughs) sure which may have been a blessing because I think it's easy sometimes to assume the worst for ourselves and our situation so what happened after you got the biopsy call
1: so I didn't actually have a call I went in to the doctor and so I I didn't even know and actually it's weird because the living in a very in a rural area um, and having to go so far for treatment, you kind of get bounced around between doctors. And I guess one doctor doesn't know what the other doctor has said. So I never had that sit down talk with the doctor where they'd sit down and said, you have cancer. I never had that. Um, when I went in for my, uh, biopsy, they automatically scheduled me for an appointment with a surgeon. Um, even before they had the results, I had an appointment with a surgeon. So I guess that was kind of a slap in the face, letting you know, this is serious. Uh, We're not even going to wait for those results because we're pretty sure they're going to say bad Mm -hmm. stuff.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, So I went in to meet with the surgeon and (laughs) he pretty much felt my boob and said, all right, you're going to have to do chemo first. That was
0: the first thing he said to you?
1: That's pretty much, yeah. Yeah, Mm -hmm. pretty much just looked at me felt my boob and said you're gonna have to have chemo first so never said you have cancer never said never he just like you're gonna have to have chemo first this is the doctor I'm recommending you for we'll get you set up with an appointment And I was like oh so like three days later I had to go back and meet with the oncologist um who then yeah was very some doctors do not very do not have very good bedside manner. <laughs> and so that was when I was told, yeah, you have to have chemo and we're going to do this first and we're still waiting for a couple more test results to figure out what kind of chemo we're going to do. Um, and we'll let you know when those come in. So, and then from then it kind of was just a blur. Mm.
0: Everything happened really fast. <laughs> so, what was the next process after that when you started treatment?
1: Um, yeah, so after they got all my tests back, so to determine what kind of treatment, the reason they did chemo before surgery was because in relationship to the size of my breast, my tumor was so large. So I'm a very small breasted, um, so the tumor was large enough that they knew they wanted to do chemo to try to shrink it and possibly be able to do a lumpectomy rather than a mastectomy, um, So that is one of the reasons why they wanted to do chemotherapy first. And two, I had lymph node involvements. So they had found enlarged lymph nodes. And when they biopsied them, they showed they were cancerous as well. That that means that they knew the cancer had started to spread. So they were going to have to do chemo no matter what. So they do chemo first usually in that, in, in both of those scenarios. Um. So to determine what type of chemo that they're going to do, they have to figure out what kind of cancer it is, because there's all different types of breast cancer, and they can have all different kinds of things that fuel them. And my cancer is triple positive, which means cancer can be fed by estrogen and progesterone. And so my cancer my cancer is a type that responds to those two hormones and grows because of those two hormones. Mm-hmm. And then there's also a hormone that the cancer itself can produce called this her 2 new hormone. And my cancer produces that 20 years ago, if you had triple positive breast cancer, it was like the worst um, diagnosis that you could have because it's very aggressive and it, um, it, it, grows really quickly. And of course it's growing because it's being fed by the hormones that your body's producing. Mm -hmm. Um, but now they've come up with a lot of therapies that actually makes triple positive, um, one of the better types of cancer to have as far as prognosis goes. And as far as being able to hopefully, um, decrease your chance of recurrence, um, because they've developed these drugs that can that can target the cancer so that it doesn't produce that hurt new um, hormone, so that the cancer doesn't doesn't spread that way, and it, they've also developed drugs that you can take to make your body not produce estrogen and progesterone, um, which leads to a whole another level yeah. of side effects. <laughs> <laughs> but it keeps the cancer from growing and spreading and coming back. And the thing with triple positive breast cancer is usually when it recurs, it doesn't recur in the same spot. It usually metastasizes to some other part of your body, most notably your brain and your liver. So those are both bad places for it. So to
0: on, go. A, on a side note, talking about the, you know, hormonal side of this, did you, um, Grow up as somebody who had really bad periods that were crazy, or do any kind of birth control that may have had a hand in this, or is this a hereditary thing?
1: Um, no, to either one. I was tested for genetics, and I am not, I am genetically negative, so I do not have any genetics for cancer, and that includes all cancers. I was. There's 43 different markers they can test for now for different types of cancer, not just breast cancer. So ovarian, cervical, even prostate cancer, which, you know, we females don't have prostate cancer, but we can still carry a gene sure. to spread prostate cancer. And I test came up negative for every single cancer marker. Um, and as far as periods, no, I've always had fairly normal ones, actually fairly short ones compared to some of my friends. Um, and being on birth control, I've very rarely been on hormonal birth control. Mm, The birth control I'm on now and have been for quite a few years now is a copper IUD. So completely non-hormonal. Uh, so neither one of those things were, um, something that could have triggered this because they do say that being on Hormonal birth control long term can can result in breast cancer sure. or can yeah. increase your chances of breast cancer. But I think I might have taken a total of maybe a year's worth or maybe two years worth in my entire life. Okay. Yeah, and it wasn't constant. So yeah, yeah. They when you get cancer, you want to know why. Yeah. Um, but very much from the get go, I have put that out of my head because it's a rabbit hole you don't want to go down into for one sometimes it's obvious i mean if you're a smoker or obesity can lead to it um somebody that has a really really bad diet which usually goes along with the other two but unfortunately some people just get cancer yeah from the very beginning i've had to look at it and go okay Lance Armstrong got cancer. If Lance Armstrong can get cancer, anybody can get cancer. Okay. So it wasn't anything you did. It wasn't anything sure. that was bad. And that's what I have to keep in my mindset.
0: Yeah.
1: That, or else you just sit there and you go down this rabbit hole of blaming yourself or saying, why me and not someone else? And that's a negative situation. I yeah. don't want to have yeah. my
0: brain in. Absolutely so talking about the process of treatment you started chemotherapy and you've done several rounds of that let's talk about that process a little bit more and kind of how your body how you mentally and physically responded to that change uh
1: yes so i did um six rounds of breast cancer wording tchp so i was on Four different drugs for those six rounds. So I was on Taxol and Carboplatin, which are two very strong chemotherapy drugs, and then Perceptin and Progetta, which are two hormone blocker drugs. Um, and my experience, and this is one thing doctors will tell you you can read as much as you want about chemotherapy and supposed side effects and what can happen, but everyone is different. And that's when you ask your doctor, it's really, really frustrating because you ask your doctor what to expect. And the doctor says, I can't really tell you anything because everyone is different. And that's what you hear constantly. Everyone's different. Everyone's different. And And it's true. And it's true for me. My very first round was the worst round that I had as far as side effects went. I felt like I got hit with every single one of them. I had mouth sores. I had, um, nausea. I had diarrhea. I had, of course you have the hair loss. I had dry mouth on top of the mouth sores. I had dry eyes. Um, the nosebleeds didn't start until like round three. Um, but the a whole list, it was hard to eat because of the mouth sores and Oh, the, the loss of taste. You don't actually lose your taste. Your taste just completely changes. Everything tastes like metal. And then it goes to where you just, everything just tastes terrible. Um, the smells go along with it. You smell something cooking and it makes you absolutely nauseous. Um, but all my six rounds were three weeks apart. So the first week was absolutely the worst. And then the next week, the side effects started to wear off just a little bit. And then by the third week, I was almost feeling normal again. And then you go in and you do it all over again. (laughs) So the first round had me scared to death that it was going to get worse and worse because they say it's cumulative and your side effects will get worse. So after having all that the first round, I was absolutely... Uh, depressed. I mean, I was just like, Oh my God, if it's this bad this time and it's going to get worse after six rounds, what is, I'm just going to be this like heap of crying in the floor. Um, But the next round wasn't, wasn't bad. So if there's anybody out there that's going through it or is getting ready to go through it, just because you have one really bad round doesn't mean they're all going to be really bad. So my second round, actually, the side effects, I still had the bad taste in my mouth and I still had the nausea, but by then I'd learned when to take the pill, so the nausea wasn't so bad. Um, still had the diarrhea, but I didn't have the mouth sores, the dryness wasn't so bad, um, and they the, the um, side effects wore off qu- more quickly than they did the first time. So rounds two and three were actually pretty good. Round four was terrible. I was just so tired round four, and I had muscle pain where I could barely even move. Um, That one was really bad. And then round five wasn't so bad. And round six was worse than five, but not as bad as four. And none of them were as bad as one as far as the eating side effects. Um, Actually, by the end, the most side effects I had were from... The drug they gave me, so they gave they give you this, if you're on the regiment that I'm on where you get it every three weeks and it's those four really strong drugs, it kills your immune system. So that's what it's trying to do. It's, it kills everything and that's one of the things that kills is your immune system. Um, so your white blood cell count drastically drops and they give you a drug 24 hours later to help boost your white blood cells. And that actually made me more sick toward the end than the chemotherapy was making me. It it was the one that gave me really bad bone pain and would make me really nauseous when within about six hours from when I got it until for about six hours, I was really sick. So (laughs) just, you know, all the different things they're giving you, they all react and there's all something going on, but I got
0: through that and Now I'm on to the next stage. So from there, from treatment, you went into surgery. Right. So after chemotherapy, they wait in between three to six
1: weeks before they do surgery because they want your white blood cell count to go back up so that you'll be able to heal from surgery better. Um, So I had um, surgery four and a half weeks after I finished chemotherapy. And even though they tried to shrink it, the tumor so that I would only have to have a lumpectomy, um, it didn't shrink enough. And once again, my breasts were so small, they said the best course of action would just be to get a mastectomy. Um, and I went ahead and got a bilateral mastectomy, so I got both breasts removed, and then they had to take lymph nodes. Like I said, I'd had lymph node involvement, so they had to take the lymph nodes out from under my arm. So I had five lymph nodes removed and both breasts removed, and then um, the start of reconstruction. So that means they put these things called expanders underneath my skin, which they'll slowly feel to make it look like I have boobs again. (laughs) Um, So that was done a month ago.
0: So like, I know exactly. That, a month ago. I know that you and I have talked about this kind of on the uh, the side note. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, so many women that are listening and have gone through similar um, trials, you know, having the diagnosis. Um, how How did you process somebody telling you that you had to have both of your breasts removed? because that as a woman, You know, like that's a, that's a part of our identity to some degree. Right. So how did, how did you move through that? And how would you encourage somebody else who's going through the same thing?
1: Um, I read this the other day somewhere that, um, getting diagnosed with breast cancer and going through the different stages of breast cancer is the exact same as going through the different stages of grief. Cause you are losing something yeah. and just the same as grief. It just takes time. And you know, the whole losing my hair, you, or the starting chemo was just, it, it starts so fast. I just didn't have time to process it before mm-hmm. I started it. So you process it during the process and the losing your hair. You know, I got told like two days before I started chemo that a hundred percent, you're going to lose your hair and you're going to lose it within two weeks of your chemo starting. And so that was a lot to process because most people I think relate cancer and chemotherapy to stuff they see in movies. And in movies, it just seems like the hair loss is something that happens at the end. Hair loss is something that's, you know, that's only happens in serious cases. You don't realize it's, you know, something that happens to everybody and it happens pretty quickly once you start the process. So that was a huge shock. Um By the end of chemo, you know, you've lost your hair. Okay. You're, you've processed that and you just move on. And then you get told, yeah, that they they had been telling me the whole time during chemo that, oh yeah, lumpectomy, lumpectomy, lumpectomy. And then they say, all right, no, we can't do a lumpectomy. We're going to have to take, we're going to have to take it off. And so then I had to process one, you know, what does it mean to lose my breasts? You know, I, Mom were tiny. I'd never really thought of them before. They were just not even really there. So it's like, Oh, this, when I first started, I was like, that's not going to be a big deal. Losing my hair is going to be worse of a deal. Well, I got rid of the hair and it really wasn't a big deal. And now it comes to this and it's like, okay, maybe this is a big deal. Um, but it's just time. You just, it's something that you know has to be done and you just have to just, I journal. So write about it and write about everything that's going on and cry about it. And, cry some more and maybe scream a few times and yeah. <laughs> go for walks and curse the world and then take a deep breath and you do it. Absolutely, <laughs> Because that's, you don't really have a choice. And then you have, but I mean, my big thing was deciding what to do. Did I want to get reconstruction or did I want to just leave it as it was? Um, and I know everybody's everybody's different as to what they decide to do. Um, and I just decided, especially being, you know, I'm only 37 that, yeah, I would do reconstruction and, um, see how that went. So I was always one that said, oh my God, cause I, being a small breasted woman. I did get asked quite often, well, why don't you just get a boob job? Why don't you just get a boob job? Have you ever thought about getting a boob job? Um, (laughs) I got that quite often, men and women asking me this question. And I'd always been like, oh my God, no, I'll never do that. So then when you get faced with a mastectomy and people are like, okay, so are you going to get reconstruction? It's like, oh my God, I've always said, no, I'll never get fake boobs. But at the same time, it's like, well, they're taking away your boobs. So Yeah. You know, it's not quite the same thing.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I remember waking up um, from having my emergency hysterectomy a couple of years ago and I was sobbing. Um, And it was crazy because I think, and and thankfully, you know, I was blessed to not go through cancer and treatment and chemo. Um, But I didn't know going into the surgery... If I had cancer, what was going to happen? They did pathology at the time, and so when I woke up, I just remember being so emotional. And you know, I knew going in, okay, they're going to do a hysterectomy. I won't be able to have children anymore. Um, but there was a difference for me waking up knowing, like you—you you literally okay. can't. There's no going back. You cannot have biological children. And I'm going to be really honest, for me, that was heartbreaking. Like, I fell apart. Um, So, and I guess what, what it was for me was me getting in my head and going, okay, I don't even know that I was, right? I'm not married. I'm not, you know, I don't know that I was going to try to have children, but now I can't. So for me, it was difficult to process that. And I've talked to other women who have had hysterectomies, who've gone through the same thing. Um, and we kind of knew that going in to that procedure. You, on the other hand, have had somewhat of a similar experience, but it wasn't necessarily talked about with you. Can you talk a little bit about maybe the negligence, if you want to call it that, in not being explained what treatment and what this therapy was going to do for your ability to have kids?
1: Uh, Yeah, and I will definitely call it negligence. (laughs) That's definitely the word for it. Um, my, my doctor never warned me that, chemotherapy could one cause infertility or two that the type of breast cancer that I have, um, would pretty much prevent me from safely being able to have children in the future, I guess, is the way to put it. Um, because these hormone blockers that they're giving me, I'd have to go off of them to have a kid and, um, the chances of it recurring during my pregnancy are there. Then there's also the, the chemotherapy um, affecting your eggs. So even if I do get my fertility back, I might not have any viable eggs left. So there are options that can be done before chemotherapy. Um, you can have your your eggs harvested if you choose to go that way. There's, an ex- there's a drug that they're still working with now where they actually give you a shot um, before chemotherapy every time that kind of protect, supposedly protect your ovaries to try to protect your eggs from, from getting, from, from getting the effects or as many effects of chemo. So hopefully your eggs won't be destroyed. Um, none of those options were discussed with me. It was never told to me any of this. It was actually in between my second and third rounds when I actually, I can't remember if I read it in the, Handbook chemotherapy handbooks they'd given me first, and then I researched it, or I saw someone find mention it on one of an online support group, and then I went and started researching it, and that's when I realized, oh my gosh, um, and like you, I'm not married, and i I don't have any kids at all yet, and I don't know if they I didn't know if they were in my future, but having all of a sudden yeah. this slap in the face of okay, well. Not only are you going through all this, but there's the possibility you'll never be able to have children and you weren't told this Mm -hmm. ever. And when I talked to my doctor about it, when I went in for my third round of chemotherapy, I asked her, I said, oh, my gosh, I've been reading about infertility and you didn't tell me anything about this. And she said, well, I've only had a handful of patients that have had issues with it. And I was like, okay, well, that made me feel better for a little while. And then doing more research, I found out that only 5% of breast cancer patients are under the age of 40. So a handful of people that have had infertility treatment um, issues could be the only people she'd ever had under 40. When I go to my chemotherapy and sit in my room, I can tell you I am by and far 50 years younger than everybody else in that room. Okay, maybe not fifty. They'd be probably (laughs) mad at me if I said that. But most women with breast diagnosed with breast cancer are over the age of seventy. So I just felt very. That was something that I still haven't one hundred percent processed. Yeah. Um, But that was very difficult. Yeah, I had quite a few crying, sobbing nights about that too. So yeah, I know. I know that feeling to have that just and taken away without. And this was without my knowledge, right? Um, absolutely, yeah. And sure, I might come out of this just fine, and decide down the road I want to have a child and be able to be able to do it. But the chances are very, very slim. Um, and being a triple positive uh, breast cancer patient, one of the things that has been discussed about future um, future treatments is the removal of my ovaries. So that's another thing that we haven't gone down that road yet but it is a possibility that that could be a recommendation um, going forward so that's something you know just one more thing that you know if I'd saved eggs then that wouldn't be
0: so much of an issue but um, now (laughs) now who knows yeah and it's hard Um, I can't imagine having something I mean you're out hiking the AT, you're out there living your life, young, healthy, vibrant woman to you're in chemotherapy almost overnight. I mean, there's just, there wasn't a lot of, like you don't go into cancer being a pro at knowing what to ask, who to ask, how to navigate it, what things you should know. And it's scary to think that with the flip of a switch that can change and you're the one who is seeking treatment. So I really feel like there is, um There should be an absolute standard of things that are talked about to a patient that's given that diagnosis and who is under the treatment of a doctor. And I don't know why that has come to be for you. And I, you know, like you said, you haven't processed that yet. I'm absolutely certain there's a reason just like when you initially got your diagnosis Um, And in my heart of hearts, like, and I don't know if you're a spiritual person. I don't know if you believe in God. But to me, I connected so much because going through something similar and having the doctor look at you and say, this doesn't look good. We need to remove it. We need to go and take your uterus out. It was really scary for me. And Looking back at it now, they didn't want a biopsy because of how the mass in my uterus looked. It was very atypical. Mm-hmm. had a lot of blood flow to it. Um, the symptoms I was having and had had for years that I put off that I'd never went in and had checked. Um, she was like, absolutely. I think that we just need to go and remove it. Hindsight is very 2020, And I think looking back at, at it now, I know that I went through that for a reason because I've been able to connect with a lot of women, as you will too on a a similar journey to you. But in that hindsight, looking back, I think maybe I was so like rushed into a scary decision that I didn't make the right decision. Of course, Mm -hmm. I can't sit here and you can't sit here and beat yourself up for not knowing what you should have asked because you don't know what you don't know. But what would be your advice to somebody, Laura, who is um, maybe has a lump or is going in to have it checked out or is going in for a biopsy or just got diagnosed with something, you know, how, how, what would be your looking back advice to give to them? Oh, (laughs) um, take your time. Don't let
1: them, don't let the doctors pressure you. And, and I, I know most of us are the same way that they're a figure of authority. They're supposed to know what's best for you, but they know it's best that for what they've been taught. And the doctors are taught a very narrow window. So you, some doctors will tell you don't do any research, but I think that there is some amount of research that you need to do for yourself just to figure out because they, they'll they tell you a basics. Um, if they tell you anything at all, Um, but it it is very hard because like I have, I have a book, a handbook, they gave me a handbook and they gave it to me like four days before my chemotherapy started. So I didn't even have time to read the whole thing, but there's a whole list in there of questions you should ask your doctor. And those questions you should ask your doctor, I don't understand why those are things your doctor shouldn't just tell you anyway. That, that should just be something they tell you because I've gotten to the point where when I go to a doctor and they say, so do you have any questions for me? I look at them and say, I've never done this before. I don't know what questions to ask.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And that's the truth. This this is something you I mean, most of us going in there that we've never done this before. We don't know what to ask. We don't know what to expect. And we're so overwhelmed in that moment that you just, you, you, you kind of blank. It's like, you can think of one or two questions, but, By the time you leave the office, you've got 25 more that you want to ask. And so the biggest thing I'd say, if if you're in the situation where you're dealing with doctors, one is definitely always have a writing pad with you. And when you think of something, write your question down. Yeah. And take that pad in with you and ask your doctor all those questions. And this is no matter what health issue you're going through. Um, If you have just found a lump go and get it looked at <laughs> don't <turn> it off. <laughs> the sooner the better because like you said hindsight's 2020 20, I wish I'd gone earlier. maybe it wouldn't have already been in my lymph nodes maybe it wouldn't have spread as far as it has you, you don't know but it's going to be something you're going to kick yourself about if you don't do it mm-hmm. and it could be nothing so then you're stressing over something that doesn't yeah. that you shouldn't be stressing over um If you're worried because of the money situation, which was my biggest fear, doing what I do, I didn't have health insurance. Um, So I was really concerned about that. And one of the reasons I finally did go is I had somebody that pretty much said, you've got to go. She was a nurse that that I met on the trail. And she said, you've got to go and get this checked out and don't worry about the money situation. It will work itself out. Um, and so I did and it has, um, so yeah, I don't, the hospitals offer so many financial aid programs that, um, and they have financial aid advisors to help you out. Once you go in with your diagnosis, initially it will be very daunting and very scary. And there will be bills that you'll have to pay. Um, but the biggest bills will end up being, you'll, you'll end up getting help for those no matter what your situation don't, don't put it off and make it even worse just because you're scared of the financial aid. And they're going to tell you, don't worry about the finances. Just worry about getting yourself. And I know good and well, that there's no way you can do that. (laughs) That's the worst advice. Everybody, anybody's ever given. Oh, don't worry about the money. yeah Who doesn't worry about the money? I mean, really? (laughs) Exactly.
0: Laura, as somebody who is, um, like you mentioned, small breasted, did you, and, and young, right? You were 36 when you were diagnosed. Right. Did you do routine breast exams? No. No, not really.
1: I mean, I'd feel them every now and then in the shower, you know, but I was not a routine breast examiner.
0: No. Yeah. So it was just... And they don't... And
1: since I don't have a history of breast cancer in my family, they don't even recommend mammograms until you're 40. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, it was... I'm not going to say lucky that I found it because it was so large. There was no way you could ignore it.
0: Yeah. I've had several clients who have had breast cancer and being somebody who's fairly small chested myself, I will be totally honest. It's not something that I do routinely. Like I, I don't, you know, I go in every few years to have my, you know, woman's exam and they do it. And I think Mm -hmm. it's the most awkward thing ever. And that's just me being totally (laughs) honest, right? Like, I don't know you, the lights are on, your hands are cold. This is weird, but in all all seriousness, I do think it's something that, that we need to do as women to take the time to do that. Because if not, you're thinking, Hey, I don't feel too bad. Hey, I'm still out here, you know, kicking ass and taking names. I'm young, I'm healthy. And then all of a sudden we can get blindsided with something.
1: And unless you have get inflammatory breast cancer, the breast cancer is not going to make you feel bad until it spread somewhere mm-hmm. else. And by then that that's, that's bad. Yeah. Um, and as young females, a lot more young people are getting diagnosed with breast cancer. And as young females, we already have really dense breast tissue. So it's already harder for, even if you do go in for a mammogram for the mammogram to find smaller spots or be able to tell if there's something that's more than just a fibrous area or a cyst when it's really small. Um, so knowing your breast and um, knowing noticing any changes in it
0: mm-hmm.
1: are are actually really important, especially for for us younger people who are younger than the age of a of a um, recommended mammogram mm-hmm. or don't have the genetics in our family or don't know.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, so getting you back to being healthy, moving around, coming up to hunting, hopefully the border's all open soon and you're able to do that. What is like, where is your mind at right now? Like, what do you want to get back to doing? Uh, All of it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I want to get back to all of it. And that's what I've had to tell my doctor a few times. One of them said he actually uses the term new normal you <laughs> and punch I him? wanted to slap him. <laughs> I'm so tired of hearing it as in, in reference to COVID. And then he uses it in reference to, to, to cancer. And he's like, well, sometimes you're just going to have to get used to this new normal. And I looked at him and said, unless my new normal is better than my old normal, I'm not going to be a new normal. So <laughs> that's kind of the mindset I'm having to go through, trying to go through all this in of I'm going to come out of this better than what I was
0: before and I have it might take no a long doubt. time. I have no doubt, <laughs> Laura. I'm going to take know. a while, but
1: yeah, and I've finished chemo and I've had my surgery now, but when they did my surgery, um, you know, another kick in the butt, they, they take out your, your tumor and they, they look at it and they tell us how the chemo is done. And my results came back as in the chemo barely did anything. Um, so, and my lymph nodes were all still involved as well. They all still had cancerous tissues in them. and one of them actually what had what they refer to as extranodal extensions, um, which I just call it was growing tentacles, which means it was trying to spread. So that's bad that's a bad thing. So I will start radiation in about a month or so um, to try to get all the cells that are in that area and make sure they're all fried. Um, something that I really, really didn't want to do. I went into surgery really with the belief it was going to come out with a complete pathological response. And that meant I was pretty much done. That's was good, yeah. but that didn't happen. So this next stage. And so the drug I'm on now, rather than just being a hormone blocker is a chemotherapy and a hormone blocker, which I still go every three weeks to get that and we'll be doing that until like November Um, but radiation is terrible because for the I have to do 30 rounds of radiation so six to seven weeks of radiation and you do it you go in every day to get it done so that limits a lot of your movement especially since I have to go over two hours away so I will actually have to live in the town get a place to stay where my radiation clinic is um and do it that way um so that kind of limits what you can do during during all that but I'm just trying to keep hiking at least a little bit every day and um to stay in active so that once I can go on long trips again that I'll be physically fit enough to be able to do it yeah.
0: Well, your upgraded normal is incredible already, so I can't wait to see just at the end of this, just watching you get back to doing the things that love and really fuel you. I think that for what it's worth, not that my opinion matters, but you are you are an inspiration, and I hate that you're struggling. I wish that I could wave the wand and take your suffering away. absolutely. But I want you to know. For what it's worth, that you are inspiring and empowering those who have not even yet walked through this. You are being a leader for those of us to come that will walk through what you're going through. So, thank you for being the voice that can share that and for being vulnerable and open and, you know, giving hope to somebody else who's going to follow behind. Thanks. That was when I had the decision
1: when I made the decision when I first got diagnosed, whether to share it on Facebook or not, um, that was the reason why I thought you know only five percent of cancer patients are are my age, so there's so many people out there, and I felt like I had no one to go to that knew what I was going through that was the same age as me. Sure, I knew a lot of older women that had been through it, but not someone that was my same age or my same activity level or was used to doing things outside all the time and constantly being going, finding someone that was similar to me was very difficult. And I thought, well, if I share this, there, I know there's going to be more people out there that are in the same, that are, that are in the exact same scenario as me or maybe not right now, but in the future They'll see it and they'll be like, oh, my gosh, this is this is someone that did it and they came out the other end. (laughs) Um, And I think that's really when you're going through things like this is seeing other people that are that are doing it and that are still, you know, they're still alive and they're still doing what they were doing before. And that was my biggest fear when they started telling me all these treatments and all these side effects was I'm not going to be able to be the same person that I was before. And I'm not going to be able to do the same things that I did before. And that scared me more than anything.
0: Yeah. Well, you, you go from this high level of life experience and adventuring and opportunities to, you know, something controlling what you can do, you know, and where you can go and, and all of those things. It's uh, it's, it's, it's very uncomfortable to have your abilities and your choices chosen for you. Exactly. Exactly. That that's, that's it right there. It's you don't have that choice
1: anymore. It's and it's unknown because like I said, you don't know what your side effects are going to be and you don't know how long it's going to take to get to the next step. So you can't make a plan. Um, you, you can't make a plan two or three months out. It's like, okay, I can make a plan of I'm going to go to chemo on this particular day, but like I want to go on a backpacking trip for three days. Can I do this? Well, you don't know. So you, you can't say, okay, yes, I can make a plan because I know I'm going to be able to feel this good to be able to do that or I want to go on this trip, but I have to wait to get my surgery results back to tell me if I have to do radiation or not. Yeah. And I don't know how I'm going to react to radiation and how long that's going to take. So it's really hard to not be able to make those plans, um, the, have that unknown little section. And, and it's because this... It's not because of a choice you've made, but because of a choice that's been made for you.
0: Well, I think we should make a plan that once this is all behind you, you and I jump on either the PCT or the AT or go to New Zealand or do something incredible. I would love to share that experience with you. You are awesome. I would love
1: that. PCT, heck,
0: that's in your backyard. It is in my backyard. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, Laura, where can people reach out and follow along on the journey that you're going through right now and connect with you online? Um, Yes, you can find me on
1: my Facebook page, which is Laura Jean Young, L-O-R-A-G-E-N-E Young. Um, And I'm on Instagram at Gypsy Nomad Hiking or at Gypsy Nomad Hunting. Awesome. So you
0: can follow me on both of those. <laughs> I will also include links to that in the show notes and on the blog so people can connect and reach out and send you some encouragement as well as I'm sure you're going to hear lots of stories from other women going through this. So we can all support each other, um, move forward, be the best versions of ourselves and upgrade to the new normal, right? That's yes. going to be even than the old <laughs> The new normal, normal is it? Upgrade. Yes, (laughs) exactly. Well, thank you so much for your time and coming on, sharing your story, being vulnerable and just being really authentic and real and bold in what you're going through. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Once again, thank you for tuning into the show. We hope that your cup is full and you're ready to embrace your untamable vibe. If you enjoyed the show, could you do us a favor? Help us grow our audience by sharing your favorite episode on social media, sending the episode to a friend and leaving us a review online. We love to hear from you. One more thing, be sure to press that subscribe button and never miss a weekly episode. See you next week.